This is a Federal News Network podcast. If your product does not meet the government's specifications, it can be dangerous in more ways than one to try and rig something up. But that's what a manufacturer of food processing equipment did with predictable results. Federal Procurement Attorney Joseph Petrillo is here with more on the case. And this is the Holly Matic Company. Tell us what happened when they tried to sell a jury-rigged product to the Defense Department. Well, good morning. Holly Matic was a long-standing, apparently almost 90-year-old manufacturer of equipment for the food manufacturing and service industries. So it's a well-established company, and it's been making uh, and selling these things commercially into the government for a long time. The Defense Commissary Agency was seeking a replacement for its meat grinders slash mixers for its various commissary stores, and it needed to buy replacements for their aging supplies and equipment. So they issued a solicitation for a commercial grinder slash mixer, and the specifications had numerous requirements, including that the item be approved by the Underwriters Laboratory and the National Sanitation Foundation. So it needed both UL and NSF certifications. Which are pretty standard certifications. I mean, for anything electrical that's handling food, I imagine you would need that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, this is a characteristic of what you'd expect to find in the commercial marketplace, too. So Hollymatic competed, but the product it offered, one of its standard pieces of equipment, was technically unacceptable. The problem was that the specifications also required that there be separate motors for the grinder and the mixer. And it had a unit that has single motor. All right. So Hollymatic had proposed that several times, was continually found unacceptable. Finally, they uh, described a machine, the same model, with separate motors, which they described as a mix-assist motor option at no cost. They were the low offeror and acceptable, so they got the contract. They delivered 38 units, and they were paid close to half a million dollars. These are apparently not cheap items. Almost immediately, however, the store started reporting electrical problems, and that the units needed new electric cords and plugs. Government did some investigation. They had some questions about the UL and NSF certifications. So they sent Hollymatic a cure notice saying, what's going on here? Hollymatic did not provide an adequate answer. So the contract was terminated for default. And the contracting officer's final decision said that the Hollymatic had to refund the amounts that had been paid. Wow, they wanted to turn back the equipment altogether. It sounds like Hollymatic kind of rigged up something to put another motor on the some stage of this piece of equipment, and I'm looking at the Hollymatic website, and that's what they do. They take large quantities of beef and turn it into large quantities of hamburger from the looks of it. So, That's apparently what this thing was supposed to do, and uh, I guess the units they sell commercially were doing that. So Hollymatic appealed the termination. Exactly, to the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals. And the government defended the appeal, and it argued, actually, that Hollymatic had obtained the contract fraudulently. So the board looked at the record, and they noted that Hollymatic did not specifically say that the two-motor version of the product had been UL and NSF certified, but they put enough in the proposal to create that impression. Previous statements in the, in the earlier versions of the proposal had said that the single-engine version was, in fact, UL and NSF certified. They were silent about the dual-motor version not yet having that certification. 
And the record showed very clearly that they didn't even bother applying for ULN NSF certification until after they got award. So the board also noted that the dual motor version had never been sold or offered for sale and wasn't in that regard a commercial item. So they decided that both of those things were misrepresentations. All right. We're speaking with Joseph Petrello, a procurement attorney with Smith Pactor McWhorter. And when you raise the cause for terminating a contract to fraud above just simply the machines didn't work very well or something, that's that's worse, isn't it? That is worse. And it has certain implications that I'll talk about in a second. I mean, the the, the finding about uh, misrepresent well, the misrepresentation was also considered material because it went to a required specifications. And the board also had to find for each fraud that the government had reasonably relied upon the misrepresentation. In that instance, because there was a finding of essentially fraud that voided the contract ab initio, which is a fancy way of saying no contract ever came into existence. The ASBCA then dismissed the appeal But they didn't dismiss it because they had ruled against the contractor on the merits necessarily of whether the termination was proper. They ruled that no contract had ever come into existence at all. They didn't have jurisdiction. And they couldn't even order the contractor to repay the money to the government because they had no jurisdiction. So that's an an interesting kind of legal result, but it, it leaves things where they are exactly for Hollymatic. Well, did the Board of Contract Appeals say that there was no contract in place because the contract had been terminated? No. It ruled that the fraudulent misrepresentation that resulted in the contract meant no actual deal had occurred. Now, there are a few things to note about this decision that I think are interesting. One is I'm not entirely sure that this wasn't a commercial item. There are aspects of the definition of commercial item that allow an item that hasn't yet been sold to be offered as a commercial item. But I don't think that was critical here because the board also found the failure to get the certifications was fatal. So that would have resulted in the same, I think, holding. What Hollymatic here should have done, I think, was to have objected to the requirement for dual motors. It's selling this item commercially. It's being used commercially for, I'm sure, the same exact purposes, and it's working properly. The requirement for dual motors was probably inappropriate because it was more than the government actually needed, and Hollymatic could have tried to get it changed, and if necessary, could have protested it. What Hollymatic shouldn't have done is what it did, which is to misrepresent what it was doing to meet the specifications, and in essence, that led to its losing the contract. Interestingly, they offer a item called a bulker, which is attached to the grinder that further grinds the meat and puts it in packages. This is for supermarkets and so forth. I guess you could see where that could be helpful aboard a ship. But that clearly has a separate motor because it's a separate thing that attaches when the meat comes out of the grinder. So it seems like they wanted to try to do this with no additional cost, whereas normally this second stage piece does come with you have to buy it separately. So they were trying to straddle something here that they just couldn't quite do. Right. Exactly. That that was the problem. And, you know. It's really a good example of how not to go about getting a contract and the need to be careful about details like certifications. Or maybe it's a good idea to set up a a fly-off, you know, of meat grinders in this case to see which one burns up when you you turn on the second motor. (laughs) Oh, that would have been an interesting competition. (laughs) Yeah, and we all bring out the grill and try them afterwards and decide which we want to feed to the uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines. The way this ends up now is... 
they're still in dispute over whether they get the money back, the uh, government. I have a feeling the government will be getting the money back. I mean, a finding of fraud is bad. It could even result in a debarment or suspension. So uh, this has gotten to be a serious matter for the company. All right. Joseph Petrillo is a procurement attorney with Smith Pactor McWhorter. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke, He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision 
and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was a beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a Secretary of Commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, 
but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet, or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.